Let's pray together. It is good to know you, Father. What can we say to you? How can we render thanks that instead of leaving us pawing around in the darkness, you have made yourself known in the rising of the sun and in the setting of the same. You have caused your line to go out in all the earth. You have made yourself known to us in your word and you've made yourself known to us in your son who told us, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And as we think about what life on this world is like, fallen and broken, tearing our hearts out at times, we want to render thanks that we get to know you, our maker and indeed is our redeemer, the father of our Lord Jesus, who was crucified and raised for us. Put it in our hearts, Lord to keep our eyes fixed on him, to never turn from him, that we would be a people for your glory, conform to his image. And so, Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes even now so that we could behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the most sobering storylines in all of the Bible surrounds the Apostle Paul's three brief references to this fellow named Demas. This is not a man that we know much about. Paul only mentions Demas three times, one time each in three books, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. Every one of those letters, when Paul's writing them, he's writing as a prisoner. When he writes to the Colossians and to Philemon, Paul is a prisoner under house arrest in Rome. It's the situation that we find Paul in when we leave him in the book of Acts at the end. He's under house arrest, and from the narrative up to that point, we feel reasonably sure that Paul's appeal to Caesar eventually is going to be heard and lead to his release. And indeed, many commentators, including myself, um, believe that Paul was eventually released from that house arrest that we read at the end of Acts, and he left that, and he was able to do more ministry. And it looks like Demas is with Paul, serving Paul during his house arrest in Rome. <clears throat> Indeed, in Philemon 24, Paul calls Demas his fellow worker. And at the end of Colossians, Paul mentions Demas again, and apparently he's still standing there with Paul while he's detained in Rome. But by the time we get to 2 Timothy, three or four years have, have elapsed. After being released from house arrest, the Romans eventually arrest Paul again. The second imprisonment in Rome is much more dire than the first one. There's no successful appeal to Caesar anticipated, nor is there any anticipated release 
Indeed, Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. So this is the end of the line for Paul. Paul has cheated death many times, but Paul says, not this time. His fellow workers that were with him in his first imprisonment have all scattered for a variety of reasons, and only Luke remains with him. And so in these final desperate hours, he writes to Timothy to ask him to come to him as soon as possible and to bring some things that he needs. But among those fellow workers who had scattered from Paul since the first imprisonment, Paul mentions Demas. And he says something about Demas that he doesn't say about any of the others. He says, Demas, having loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas didn't just leave Paul. He deserted Paul. He left him in a lurch. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going, not with Demas. Demas deserts Paul in Paul's most desperate hour. And Paul says the reason for his desertion is because he loves this world. Demas loved the world, not in the sense that God so loved the world, John 3, 16, but in the sense forbidden by 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Demas loves the world, and so he deserts Paul. Whatever usefulness Demas was to Paul was no more. Whatever appearance Demas gave of faithfulness to Christ was over. Whatever purity of devotion to Christ that once characterized Demas had passed away. Demas developed a love for the world that, according to 2 Timothy, shipwrecked him in the end. Now, you and I know that real, bona fide Christianity is not about how a person starts, but about how they finish. There are many people who begin the journey, but there are, sadly, fewer who finish the journey. Jesus told us that it would be this way. He told us, you remember in the parable of the soils, about how the word is sown in different kind of soils. In some cases, the planted word results in immediate growth, only to be choked out by the worries and the concerns of this world. In other cases, the word is planted, but then Satan comes and steals it away. In those cases, there's no fruit, which means there's no finishing for those people. They make a start, but they don't finish. Only the seed sown on the good earth finishes and bears fruit. Once you've professed faith in Christ, the biggest issue in your life is not whether you've started, but whether you're going to finish. Will you continue to walk with Christ to the end, or will Satan steal the word away? Or will the worries and the concerns of this world grind you up and choke the gospel out of your heart? Why is it that some people start, but then are unable to finish? 
Will you be one of them? And how can you make sure that you won't become one of those who fail to finish? That's the burden of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 1 to 4. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. I had planned to do six verses, but we're just going to do four this morning. Verse 3 in this passage sums up what's at the heart of Paul's concern for the believers in Corinth. He says this, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul's concerned about. That they would start and then fail to finish. That they would be drawn away. The north star of faithfulness, Paul says, is sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But Paul knows that there are influences in the congregation in Corinth that are trying to lead them astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so we saw in chapter 10, Paul announced his intention to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. You had these influences raising themselves up against the knowledge of God, threatening the church, and Paul says, we're going to tear those influences down. He called on the Corinthians to deal with those in the congregation who were the source of such dangerous speculations and who were raising themselves up as rivals to Paul and to his authority. Now in chapter 11, Paul is going to amplify that confrontation with these false teachers who have emerged in Corinth. And so Paul does so in these first four verses by expressing his concern for the congregation's sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He is very concerned about their sincerity. He is very concerned about their, their purity. And so I've got two points in four verses this morning. We're going to see Paul's zeal for their purity in verses 1 and 2, and then Paul's concern for their purity in verses 3 and 4. So his zeal for their purity, verses 1 and 2, his concern for their purity in verses 3 and 4. So first of all, Paul's zeal for their purity. Everybody look at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Paul's asking here for a little indulgence, for what might sound like a little bit of foolishness, because he's about to defend himself, and he's, he's going to defend his apostolic bona fides to the Corinthians, and he's aware that he might sound foolish to talk about himself and to defend himself in the way that he's about to do this who wants to talk about themselves and center their own experiences but he's about to do this and so he presses forward because what he has to say actually no matter how it sounds is actually not foolish the corinthians need to hear from him because the lord jesus had appointed paul to bear christ's name to the gentiles Now the Corinthians are hearing these influences drawing them away from Christ, and they need to hear the influence that's going to draw them to Christ, and that's the apostle of Christ, Paul. And so he's going to be pointing to his experiences to establish his authority and his apostleship. Everybody look at verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, literally, in this verse, Paul says, I'm zealous for you with the zeal of God. In the ESV, it says something like, I feel a divine jealousy, but it's literally, I'm zealous for you, or I'm jealous for you with the zeal of God. What does he mean by that? He means that he has an intense personal desire for and interest in the Corinthians. And in particular, that they would walk in faithfulness to the Lord and not be led astray from him. Why then do so many translations like the ESV say that um, this is divine jealousy? What is that all about? Is it jealousy a bad thing? Well, you know what the difference between envy and jealousy is? Have you ever thought about this before? Envy is when you want something that you don't have, and jealousy is when you fear losing something that you already have. So a young man who experiences jealousy is somebody who sees maybe his girlfriend flirting with another man. But that same young man may experience envy when he sees a friend with an attractive date. Okay, It's a difference between wanting to hold on to something you already have or wanting to grasp something that you don't have. But both feelings, envy and jealousy, produce the same kind of bitterness or anxiety towards others. Either for coveting what you don't have or fear of lo- losing what you do have. It's why they're depicted as sins in Scripture. So when we think of jealousy, we often think of it in those negative terms, a kind of a grasping anxiety for something that you don't want to lose. But there's another way to talk about jealousy that has a more positive connotation. I think that's the connotation that Paul is using here. Sometimes we talk about being jealous in the sense of being vigilant in guarding something. So if somebody says that they're jealous for their good name, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That kind of jealousy doesn't harbor bitterness towards someone for trying to take something from you or for having something that you want. On the contrary, that kind of jealousy expresses a zeal to keep and to guard something good and praiseworthy. So it's just like the proverb says that a good name is to be more desired than great riches. So also somebody who's jealous for their good name is doing something right and good. And so it, it's that kind of jealousy that Paul intends here in verse 2. He's zealous or jealous to be vigilant to guard something precious and good. Namely, he's trying to guard and protect the bride of Christ. He's zealous for them. We know that this is a good zeal or a good kind of jealousy because Paul says he's zealous or jealous with the zeal or jealousy of God. And we know by definition that God's zeal or jealousy is always good because he's good. In fact, that phrase, the zeal of God, or maybe sometimes translated the jealousy of God, may very well be a callback to the Old Testament instances where that same term is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's zeal for his covenant people, Israel, who were often described as God's wife. So, for example, Isaiah 9-7, we all know this one from Christmas time, what does it say? Of the increase of his government and, the, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the Messiah is coming to his people. And then what does it say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Same word from 2 Corinthians. Or Isaiah 37, 32. Out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, a remnant of the faithful among God's people. Out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. Indeed, all from the Old Testament into the, Old, into the New Testament, you see the zeal of the Lord or the jealousy of the Lord for his people, and it's always a good thing. God's jealousy for his people is a good thing, and Paul is saying that his own jealousy for the Corinthians is like God's. He has a zeal for them with the zeal of God. He's zealous to guard God's people. The question is why? Look at the second part of verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Ah, you notice what Paul's doing here. He's saying that just like God's people were depicted as God's bride under the old covenant, so also God's people are depicted as Christ's bride under the new covenant. Except in this arrangement, Paul is playing the part of the father of the bride. Paul came to Corinth. He was the first one to preach the gospel to the Corinthians. They believed and got saved. Paul gave birth to to them in that sense he's their father he betrothed them to christ as their father for jews in the first century that idea of betrothal it's kind of an old-fashioned word we don't use it very much because betrothal is a little bit different from our engagement Um, that period of time before um, a consummated marriage union where you're sort of promised to, uh, to each other So engagement, though, for us is more of an informal arrangement um, that, you know, you can get engaged to somebody and maybe not even have a ring or a date for a year. You know, and you could break it off and get engaged on Friday, get break the engagement on Saturday. No big deal. Well, emotionally, it could be a big deal, but um, there's no legal um, aspect to this. But betrothal was was different. And if you're going to understand what Paul's talking about in terms of betrothal, you've got to know what he means. Betrothal in Paul's day was more like a first stage of marriage among the Jews. It was the legal promise that could only be dissolved really with a legal divorce. And so the betrothal period lasted for about a year where the bride would be betrothed to the, group, to the future husband, but they wouldn't be living together. But they would be promised to one another. It's a little bit like after the wedding ceremony happens in our context. And that period of time between when they say their vows and when the consummation happens on the wedding night. You know, for us, that's usually a period of, you know, hours mainly. But for them, it was like a year. Okay. And so they were betrothed to one another, promised. And to dissolve that relationship would have required a legal dissolution of the relationship. So it lasted about a year oftentimes amongst the Jews. They weren't living together until a consummation that happened about a year later. But until the wedding and the consummation took place, the father of the bride was responsible for safeguarding the daughter's purity. Commentator David Garland says it this way. He says, the image of betrothal suggests that the Corinthians' marriage to Christ awaits consummation when Paul 
will present them to him at the second coming of Christ. So this is why Paul says in verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband. One guy you're going to be married to. Not ten different guys. You're not going to have a bunch of different lovers. It's going to be one husband. I betrothed you to one man. Why? To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see how Paul's playing the part of the father of the bride in this betrothal. Deuteronomy 22, 13 and following implies that it's the father's responsibility to present a pure bride to her betrothed husband. Paul says he's playing that part in Christ's betrothal to his church. Paul says his goal is to present God's people to Christ as a pure virgin at the wedding ceremony. That's his job. What does that mean? It means he doesn't want to just start them down the aisle. He wants the bride of Christ to make it down the aisle. He wants them to start and finish. Even in our own wedding ceremonies, we at least symbolically are portraying these same kind of realities. You know, a bride wears white. Why? To symbolize purity. A father walks the bride down the aisle to present her for marriage to her fiancé and to say that the responsibility of care and protection is transferring from him to this young husband. And one of the best parts of a wedding ceremony, you all know this, is watching the faces of the bride and the groom as they see each other across the aisle. Their eyes lock. They're looking at each other. Everything and everyone in the room kind of falls away from their attention. And everybody who's there, we're all craning our necks to try to see the beautiful bride. And then what are you doing? You're looking to see... What the groom is, is he going to cry? Is he gonna, what, what's he going to do? Everybody's looking to see them because we all want to see them looking at each other, right? But imagine for a moment what it would be like if while walking down the aisle, their eyes don't meet. And instead, she's looking around the congregation to see if there are any cute guys. Her groom is looking at her, but she's trying to catch the attention of other men in the room. And other men in the room are trying to catch her attention. And a guy on the back row calls her name and says, you're looking good. Let's get together. And he hands her his number. And she takes it. She takes another step. Another guy stands, holds his hand out in the aisle, grabs her hand, gives her a little kiss and says, there's more where that came from. I'll call you later. And she sort of blushes and smiles and continues down the aisle. This goes on with two or three more men in the room as she walks down the aisle. And by the time her frustrated father finally gets her down to the altar, in all likelihood, there's not going to be anybody standing there. Because any guy with two brain cells is not going to go for that. He is going to have made his exit. By them. No man marries a woman who is making arrangements for infidelity on her way down the aisle. And no father would try to present such promiscuous infidelity to a waiting groom. Indeed, it's his job not to allow that to happen. He's working as a father for that not to happen. 
This is the image that Paul is trying to draw of the church's relationship to Christ and his responsibility to them as the church. And yet how many Christians treat their betrothal as an opportunity for infidelity? When you become a Christian, you become betrothed to Christ. Your whole life between now and your death or between now and the second coming of Jesus is one long walk down the aisle. In your walk down the aisle, that is the course of your life. How many of you are taking your eyes off of Christ to see if there are any other cute alternatives in the room? Paul says that he's jealous to make sure that he presents Christ's bride to him as not as a roving-eyed adulteress, but as a single-minded, pure bride. He wants the bride to be the kind of bride that looks at the groom at the front and they never break eye contact. They're always looking at each other. And there is a mutual delight that brings her forward all the way down. So that means that Paul means for all of us not to be roving-eyed adulteresses, but to be single-minded in our devotion to Christ. We never take our eyes off of the prize. The prize is Jesus. The prize is having him. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 3? But whatever to was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So that I might be found in him. We are not looking around the room for alternatives. If someone calls our name to present themselves as a better alternative to Christ, we don't even turn our heads. Our eyes are fixed on the prize and all other voices and concerns are fading from our view. That's what betrothal is about. Is that the way that you're living your life? With single-minded devotion to Christ. That is the aim that Paul had for the Corinthians. And that's the aim that the Lord has for every single one of us. Do you see here in verses 1 and 2 Paul's zeal for their purity? If you see that, now look at verse 3 where he expresses his concern for their purity. Look at verse 3. But I am afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts or your mind will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice what Paul wants for God's people. It's sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That word sincere um, literally could be rendered as simplicity, maybe even single-mindedness. It it describes someone who has her eyes on the groom alone, not someone with eyes roving over the room to see if there's anybody else better around. In that sense, sincere devotion is single-minded devotion. She's not looking for another person to love in place of the groom. There's a clear link here between that word pure, single, a sincere and pure devotion, so that Uh, word pure and verse two where he talks about a pure virgin both terms are picturing a bride who hasn't been sullied by rivals to the groom she hasn't been drawn away by their invitations but she remains fixed on her groom 
She hasn't bought into false, for us that would mean, we haven't bought into false doctrines, but remain committed to pure doctrine and therefore have purity of heart in life. That's what Paul means by sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You've got Christ's word, you've got all these other messages out there. Christ's bride remains faithful to his word, and we don't pay attention to all these other messages. We turn away from them. Paul's deep concern is the bride's pure and sincere devotion. And he does not want that devotion to be corrupted and destroyed. That's what he's concerned about. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your mind will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You're going to hear the call out from the gallery and you're going to look. That's what he's afraid of. His concern is that they would have made a good start in following Christ, but then failed to finish. That they would have started on the path to life, but then be drawn away to the path to destruction. His concern is really specific. He's concerned that they're going to get shipwrecked in the very same way that the serpent deceived Eve. And I want you to think about this, and this is why we had... Logan Reed from Genesis 3 uh, at the earlier part of the service because there is a very specific strategy that Satan employed to deceive Eve. What does he do? He does three things. First of all, he calls God's word into question. You remember that in verse 1, Genesis 3? Hath God really said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve knew what God had said. Nevertheless, she listens when Satan says, hath God really said? It's the first instance of what the apostle Paul would later call suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. She knew what God said, but now this other voice is coming in and saying, has God really said that? If you want to get people to forsake God, then you attack the word of God. And that's exactly what Satan does. He's willing to use any and whatever means he can to convince you that God has not spoken and that therefore you have no obligation to listen to, to believe, or to obey him. The entire project of theological liberalism is nothing more than one echo of the serpent's voice in the garden saying, hath God really said? The denial that you hear from so many today, of inerrancy and of the sufficiency of Scripture is essentially a variation on the original satanic theme of hath God really said. We know that tune very well because it's being sung around us all the time, every day, seeking to undermine faith and holiness and love and to destroy the people of God. So Satan exploited Eve, first of all, by calling God's word into question. And he's trying to exploit all of us in the very same way. If we listen to that voice, take our eyes off the Savior and start listening to people calling out to us, we're, we're falling into the same trap that, that Eve fell into. So he first calls God's word into question, but then Satan calls God's judgment into question. Genesis 3, 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. The serpent said, no, you'll be just fine. You can do this. There's no judgment coming down from God on sin. Satan says that God's not going to judge sin. 
notice what Satan is doing here. By saying that God won't judge sin, he's launching an attack on the holiness of God. God says that his nature is such that he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. Satan is saying God is just fine with sin. God says without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Satan says without holiness, anyone can see the Lord. You can ignore his voice and you don't have anything to fear in judgment. The entire project of Pride Month in June is nothing but an echo of the serpent's voice telling sinners, you will not surely die. God is not the kind of God that cares about these things. You'll be fine. Be yourself. Be who he made you to be. If you feel like engaging in gross sexual immorality, then that's who you are. And since God made you that that way, that means... Since you feel that way, that means that God made you that way. He just wants you to be happy after all. You won't die. There's no judgment. You're going to be fine. Every so-called preacher or Christian leader who tells sinners that God is fine with that is doing Satan's work. He's deceiving and destroying sinners. He's greasing the skids for people's destruction. Because no matter what those serpents say, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And if you give yourself over to a life of unrepentant sin, you will surely die. There will be judgment. That's not just for gay sin. That's not just for sexual sin. That goes for all unrepentant sin. God will judge unrepentant sinners. Nobody in this room, nobody on this planet is going to be an exception to that. And those who tell you otherwise are lying to you and are trying to grease the skids to your destruction. So Satan, how does he deceive Eve? He questions God's word. He questions God's judgment. He says there is no judgment. He also, this is the last thing he does, he calls God's goodness into question. Genesis 3, 5. What does Satan say? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's trying to keep you back from these good things in your life. You can't see everything as you ought to see it now. But if you'll eat this, you'll see like you should see. Um, You aren't quite like God right now. But if you eat this fruit, you'll be more like him. Now, what's the lie here? They were already like God. They were the only ones that God had created in their image. And now you've got this serpent crawling into the garden and telling them that they will be more like him if they will just eat. When the truth is, they're going to become less like him if they eat. He is a liar. He is lying to them. He lied to the Corinthians. He tries to lie to us. The entire project of what people are calling deconstruction parrots this aspect of the serpent's temptation. There's an apologist named Alyssa Childers. She describes deconstruction this way. I like it. She says, the deconstruction movement has little to do with objective truth and everything to do with tearing down whatever doctrine someone believes is morally wrong. Deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. It's built on a postmodernish embrace of moral relativism. For example, if your church says a woman can't be a pastor, the virtuous thing to do would be to leave that church and deconstruct out of that toxic and oppressive doctrine. 
Deconstructionists do not regard Scripture as being the final authority for morality and theology. They appeal primarily to science and culture and psychology, sociology, and history. All these other sources of authority that are rivals to the authority of God's word. So deconstruction doesn't look at the, to an objective standard of right and wrong. Each person can make their own moral judgments about what's right and wrong. If you f- find something coming up short in God's word even, you can make moral judgments about God and his word. And if God's not behaving according to your liking in, liking in scripture or in your life or the way things are unfolding, you just, you just judge God. And you can say, well, he's not good. If you go through some significant suffering in your life or just perplexed by the scale of suffering in other people's lives, you just might conclude that if there's a God, he's no good and it's not, he's not worthy of your devotion anyway. And so you'll hear people like a um, famous New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman wrote a book once called God's Problem. He used to be an evangelical Christian, but he left the faith. And he said this, I quote, I came to a point where I could no longer believe. It's a very long story, but the short version is this. I realized I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the facts of life. In particular, I could no longer explain how there can be a good and all-powerful God actively involved with this world, given the state of things. For many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. I came to a point where I simply could not believe that there's a good and kindly disposed ruler who's in charge of it. End quote. And so Ehrman concludes that the God portrayed in the Bible is not good. He is, this guy is now on a mission to try to discredit the Bible and convince other people that God's not good. And so you come full circle to hath God really said? Because you're questioning the goodness of God. It's the same thing the serpent was doing. Remember, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he's concerned that God's people will be led astray and destroyed through the same method that Satan used against Eve. What was his strategy? He's calling God's word into question, calling God's judgment into question, and calling God's goodness into question. And the temptation to Eve was specifically aimed at undermining Eve's mind. If she will just listen to this message, we can undermine the way she thinks and we can can undermine her faithfulness. And so Paul says that he's concerned that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so so also your minds might be corrupted. Once the mind is carried away, the will will follow. One commentator says it this way, it's not difficult to deceive those whose desires have already primed their hearts to be conned. The problem is, is that we all have fallen natures and we want to be deceived sometimes. Genesis 3.6 says of Eve, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it. And she ate. She fell hook, line, and sinker. 
And guess what? There is truly nothing new under the sun. The strategy that the serpent used to tempt and destroy Eve is the same strategy that the serpent of old is running on you and me right now. He's trying to get you to question God's word. He's trying to get you to question God's judgment and his goodness. And the question for you is, will you fall for that? If Paul is concerned about the Corinthians' vulnerability to that kind of temptation, should we be any less concerned about our own vulnerability to that kind of temptation? Paul explains why he's concerned about it in the next verse. Quickly, everybody look at verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now that word there indicates a conditional sentence, but Paul's not merely saying if for the sake of argument. There really are people in their midst, in Corinth, proclaiming a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel than what they had received from Paul. We know that because later in the chapter, in verse 13, he talks about there being false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There are really these people who have infiltrated the church. And he says, it's no wonder because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. They're not going to come in and say, we're false teachers. They're going to present themselves as faithful. And they're going to try to draw people away by looking Christian on the outside, but being satanic on the inside. We don't know exactly what these false apostles were teaching. We do know that they were setting themselves up as rivals to Paul, calling into question Paul's authority as an apostle, and they were preaching a version of Jesus that didn't match with the version that Paul had given to them. They were bringing a spirit that was not the same spirit that they received when Paul preached to them. And they were receiving a gospel that was not the same gospel that Paul had delivered to them. Guess what? If you don't have Jesus, the spirit, or the gospel... As the apostles preach them, you're not a Christian. You might call yourself a Christian, but you won't be a Christian if you don't have the same Jesus, spirit, and gospel that the apostles preached. And that's why Paul's concerned for them. People are preaching this garbage, and instead of opposing them and correcting them or getting rid of them, Paul says at the end of verse 4, you're putting up with it. You're tolerating this readily enough. If the congregation puts up with that, those kinds of divisive figures, then of course they're at risk of being carried away by their false teaching. That's why Jesus, Paul, the other apostles, they're so adamant about opposing false teaching when it arises within the church. It's because we're not playing games here. The stakes are really high. We've got one Jesus, one spirit, one gospel. You take those away or corrupt those things, and we put people at risk of being carried away and destroyed eternally. So let's try to make this a little bit closer to home. Let's say that an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher here at Kenwood begins to teach in a way that departs from our doctrinal statement. And our doctrinal statement, the two that we use, they're they're merely what we've agreed together, we think what the Bible teaches, okay? That's all that that is. Let's say that a teacher, elder, deacon, somebody stands up in the Bible study class and says something like, you know, we really need to make Christ central in our lives. So far, so good, right? Angel of light, right? 
His teaching and his example should be the main focus of everything we say and do. Well, that's good too, right? Nothing wrong with that. Jesus taught about love and acceptance. Well, yeah. He never said anything about sexuality or gender identity. Sure, there's some Old Testament verses about that, but we're no longer under the Old Testament law. We're under grace. Sure, Paul mentions those things a few times, but scholars are disputing about what those verses mean. We can't really be sure. Jesus himself never really mentioned sexuality. Therefore, if you want to pursue a gay relationship, just know that Jesus loves and accepts you without condition. Jesus doesn't judge you, and neither do we. Now, what started out good gets mixed in with a whole lot of problems. The person who teaches that way may not use the exact words, but they're nevertheless saying the same thing that the serpent said. Hath God really said, you will not surely die. God is trying to withhold good from you. But we're going to let you have that good thing you want. The words may be dressed up in Christianese, but the message is no different than the serpent's. And they're no less dangerous to anyone who listens or believes in them. That's why we never want to find ourselves in a place where we're doing what Paul said the Corinthians did. You put up with it readily enough. No, we cannot put up with this. We must not put up with that. We correct and we call for repentance when false teaching emerges. And where correction and repentance are resisted, we move forward with discipline and removal. It's that serious. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. Titus 3.10, As for a person who stirs up division, that's the false teacher, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So you can see why Paul is zealous for their purity and you can see why he's concerned about their purity. He is concerned that they're going to be listening to these voices and they're going to draw them away and overturn them. Now the whole point of Paul's warnings here is that he wants the people who begin their walk with Christ to finish their walk with Christ. People don't, it's impossible to lose your salvation. We all know that, right? But you really don't, we can't tell whether or not a person's saved just by looking at them. The proof is in the pudding. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not just starting, it's the finishing. And if you don't finish, what does John say? They went out from us, but they were not really ever of us. You will prove whether or not you know Christ by whether or not you make it all the way down the aisle looking at him. Paul doesn't want them to be deceived by the serpent and drawn away like Demas. Demas was drawn away because he loved this world. He loved this other alternative to Christ. And he went after that instead of Christ. So the application here is really simple for us. You are betrothed to Christ. Keep your eyes on the groom. Keep your ears trained on his voice. And when people present you with alternatives or they dangle this shiny thing in front of your eyes, 
You say no. And you keep your eye on the prize. Satan wants to deceive you like he deceived Eve, but you do not fall for it. We are wise to his schemes. God has given us everything we need to know for life and godliness. We know what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to think, Hath God really, did God really say that? That's not a big deal. You can do that. There's no judgment. You will not surely die. He is trying to keep you from the things that will make you happy. Don't you want to be happy? God wants you to be happy. And they invent this new God that bears no resemblance to the Bible. You can't listen to that. Those voices are all around you. And God help us, we cannot listen to that. We have to listen to our Savior, Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for your people. I pray for this church in particular that you would protect us from the evil one. I pray that when the word is sown, that you would prevent Satan from stealing it away. That we would continue to listen to the word of Christ and we would persevere in it to the end. And that no speculation raised up against the knowledge of God would have any sway among us. Father, when we fail, I pray that you would make us quick to repent. Make us humble. Restore us to walk in the narrow way. So, Father, I pray for your protection upon your people. We don't want to be drawn away as Eve was. Help us to know the truth because we love Jesus who was crucified for us and raised for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.